one RPG that went under the aircraft and another RPG went over the aircraft. And there were at least three other Taliban or insurgents with RPGs poking their head up, ready to fire as we're on approach. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 70, and welcome back again from wherever you are in the world, as together we get to dive into the helicopter industry to learn a little bit more about this corner of the aviating profession. Our guest today is Kevin Humphreys from my hometown, Brisbane in Australia. The topic we're going to tackle is aircrew mental health, which is something that doesn't get a lot of coverage, and for many people, we don't know how to discuss it or discussing it can actually be you know, actively avoided or discouraged. And, and Kevin and I discussed some of the factors behind that. One of the statistics here in Australia from studies that look at predicting mental health impacts has that 45% of the adult population will suffer a mental disorder at some time in their life and that one in five people will have experienced a common mental disorder in the last 12 months, you know, that being anxiety, depression or substance abuse symptoms as the, the top three. Layer on, on top of that, that you know, the possible stigmas against speaking up in the aviation or military or the first responder workplaces, you know, throwbacks to the idea of having the right staff that aviators are supposedly meant to have, and you know, the added guilt and pressure that sort of builds up on top of that. You know, it makes for a big mess and a, a very big topic. Hence, this interview is going to be split over two episodes. So episode 70, listening to and the next one, 71, which is coming up. In this first episode, we concentrate on Kev's military career and share in some of his experiences going through training and then deployments to East Timor, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and some of the the unique challenges that Australian Chinook Air Crew and maintainers faced in their line of work and on those operations. In the second part of the interview, in the the next episode, we had a chance to dive much deeper into the mental health uh, topic. By way of introduction and to help set the scene, I'll give you a very quick rundown on Kev's flying history and our joint background. So Kev flew with the Australian Army through the the 90s, the 2000s, flying Blackhawk and Chinook and served up until 2011. I met Kev in 2008 when he was a Lieutenant Colonel, where he was my boss and the Senior Officer in the Operational Airworthiness Section of Army Aviation. Essentially, there's two streams of organisations when it comes to airworthiness. You have the technical airworthiness side, which is the engineers who will say a item or a piece of equipment is designed, maintained and cleared to fly as they measure it against a bunch of technical or engineering standards. And then on the other side, you have the operational airworthiness that manages you know, how an item or a system is used, the procedures involved, the training uh, required, the supervision that goes into it and some of the risk management. So we would be in operational airworthiness. We'd be the people who are drafting and uh, talking to people to you know, pull together special flying instructions and standing instructions. And while it was a non-flying job, it was actually fairly interesting in the fact that you get to interface with so many different parts of the organisation. You're talking to the frontline units, to engineers, uh, to ARDU, who are the, the research and test pilot section. You can talk to people in the standards branch and then the brigade ops folks and sort of tie all that together. So that's... Uh, Kev was in charge of that section and I was working underneath him there at one stage. We don't spend a lot of time talking about uh, Kev's post-military flying career in, in rescue and the medical transport roles. But he's held job titles along the lines of you know, check-in training, uh, director of operations, uh, chief pilot roles. And he's currently a check-in training pilot on AW139s for our local government-funded rescue service. Outside of flying and on the, the mental health side of things, Kev is a speaker for Beyond Blue. He's a community ambassador for both the Mates for Mates program and the Are You OK charity here in Australia. To kick us off, I asked Kev how he first got involved in flying. How I, I got interested in flying was I grew up in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains and 
a lot of bushwalkers get lost or other things happen up there. And I remember as a teenager looking at the back and, and seeing rescue helicopters flying over my house because the, the footy oval two streets up from me was the place where the, the care flight helicopter landed on a semi-regular basis. And uh, I used to look up at the helicopter flying over my house pretty regularly and, geez, that was pretty cool. I want to do that. And, um, and I'd already uh, had an interest in the Army and then, you know, I think it was about year 11 at school, found out that the Army had helicopters. And so I was sold. And from that point, I, uh, I set about making it happen to join the Army and, and to fly. So when you went into the Army, was it already, did you know you were going to end up on pilot's course? Or did you go in and then have to try and get it through at the end of Duntroon? No, I had to. Uh, so I was a, a GSO into Duntroon. Because I, I must admit that I wanted to be in the it was a stronger pull for me to be in the army than to be a pilot. And uh, but that said, I certainly wanted to be a pilot in the army. So I went to Duntroon, got in there, and then put my hat in the ring for pilot's course, and and was lucky enough to be one of the ten blokes that you know got selected at the end of the year and a half. Yeah, it's pretty competitive. I know a couple of people have done that and then missed their, their slot and ended up going to the trucks or to, to wherever else and then tried to you know work their way back later on in, the, in their career. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that'd be, you know, that would have been fantastic. It would tick both your boxes. Oh, mate, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's something that I'm only just learning about myself in, in retrospect is I've been very, very fortunate that's an example with getting on a pilot's course and then and then all the way through um, at the other end of my career with missions in Afghanistan that in hindsight, some of my most successful outcomes have been when I, I just didn't even give any other option a thought. So there, there wasn't a thought that went through my mind that I wouldn't get selected for aviation in Duntroon. So there's no and plan same, B. Same in Af- there was no plan B. And, and, and in Afghanistan, you know, we'll talk about it later, but uh, it was the same thing. It was not once had it entered my mind that some of these things would not work. And, uh, and it was just the absolute belief that it, that it would work. And they did. So, yeah. Now, pilots, of course, you know, whether it's fixed wing or rotary in, in the military or the civil, it's kind of a, a bit of a rite of passage as you go through and sort of earn your wings. But especially going through the military, like there's no spare resources to, to get people through. You're sort of on the line the whole way through. Did you have an easy time of, of flight training or how did you go through that? Oh, God, no. Um, <laughs> man, pilot's course was the uh, potentially the hardest 18 months of my life. You know, I, I found Duntroon not too challenging, uh, but, but, but not, not a terribly pleasant experience. But when it came to pilot's course, oh my god, it was it was friggin' hard. You know, six months. So when I went through, we were the very last course to go through Point Cook. So the Navy and the Air Force courses had finished, and uh, and it was just our Army pilot's course, fifty-five Army pilots going through. And so the the good thing about that was that we had basically the whole school to ourselves. Yes, a few of the instructors had moved on and whatever else, but, uh, but every, all the instructors there were in wind-down mode. It was a really, really challenging yet fun time. Six months there, uh, I came second last on course there, had two scrub rides, almost ended up out twice. And so whilst I had no plan B getting into aviation, I certainly had a couple of plan B's starting to go through my mind once I was on pilot's course because at that stage, a 70% failure rate uh, was the average. And uh, But anyway, managed to make it through Point Cook. Went from there to the ADF helicopter school uh, for six months to learn how to fly helicopters. And, and something about helicopters just clicked for me. You know, Point Cook flying aeroplanes, I don't know what it was, but I found it really hard work. Get into a helicopter and all of a sudden, it... it it just worked for me. It just felt far more natural. And then on to, on to Oki for the ROBC, Regimental Officer Basic Course, uh, flying Blackhawks. And, and it was just, you know, that was that was what I was meant to do. It was brilliant. Now we're flying Blackhawks, formation, you know, external road work, winching work, you know, all that sort of stuff. And somehow, somehow, Kev Humphreys ended up ducking the course. <laughs> so I went from the guy who almost got scrubbed to the guy who ended up topping the course and, and you, 
you could not have found a more surprised bloke than me when he when my name was read out that so that graduation night. I tell you. Oh, good on you. How big was the uh, the course going through? Uh, so we started with uh, twenty, and uh, there were a couple of guys who back coursed, and we picked up a couple who were back coursed from ahead of us. You know, I should know this number. I can't remember exactly how many ended up graduating. Uh, it was ballpark ten or eleven. Uh, and of those, only three were GSOs. So the 70% failure rate was spot on the money for the GSOs. We started with 10 and ended with three. And what was it like going to, oh, I'm guessing it was 5AV, going to the unit as that DCAT pilot uh, for the first time? Yeah, it was, um, yeah, so 5AV of the three GSOs, uh, one went to Blackwell, one went to Huey, and one went to Kiowa, so it was an even split. I went off to 5AV, and yeah, as a, a DCAT, it was. You know, the, the beginning of the boys' own adventure, basically. I uh, I was still kind of pinching myself that uh, that I'd actually made it through course and, and here I was now as a professional pilot and I actually didn't even use the phrase until many years later. But, yeah, getting there was just, wow, because my, my background coming into this was I was a public school boy, did not, didn't travel, hadn't been outside Australia, you know, just going to Duntroon was, wow, look at this place. This is flash. And, you know, really hadn't travelled much around Australia. So here I was now you know, in Townsville. I had the keys to a Black Hawk at the age of 21, albeit as a, as a DCAP. Uh, but still, I thought for a 21-year-old, that was pretty flash. And so, and now getting to fly this amazing aircraft with amazing people, you know, doing formation, low level, getting a night vision goggle qualification shortly after getting to Townsville. Uh, it, it was just a, almost a you know, dream come true. It was just superb. And, and like I say, the beginning of the boys' own adventure. We spoke quickly before about uh, the, the book Chicken Hawk. And, you know, we read these stories about these guys doing things in Vietnam and they were sort of like 21, 22 as well. You kind of underestimate what you know, people of that age can, can do. And as you said, you know, you're on Blackhawks doing these night missions and formation, doing all their bits and pieces. So it's, it's just, you know, I guess it's such a good training system that you go through that you can come out and – and uh, have those skills at a, at a pretty young age. Oh, it is. It, it, it is second to none. And, you know, Chicken Hawk was absolutely mandatory reading. You know, certainly I read, I don't know how many times when I was at Duncherin getting ready for my, um, for my selection panel. And, you know, the, the military has a way of training their pilots to a standard that makes them incredibly capable aviators. And I, now that said, they then support those young aviators in a system to allow them to do what they do and so it's the totality of the training system and the operational system and and everything that wraps around them the technical airworthiness the operational airworthiness that allows them to do what they do you know and, and indeed that said i look back now and i go my god did we really do those things as a 21 22 25 year old with you know 300 hours on type um, and and maybe 550, 600 hours total time. You know, some of the things that we got up to were, were pretty cool. Yes, we had another experienced pilot on board and, and all the rest of it, but that experienced pilot might have had 1,000 or 1,200 hours. Uh, we're not talking, you know, 10,000 or even 5,000 hours half the time. Yeah, many times, like the, the senior guy, the, the troop commander, he'd be sitting at, you know, 1,400 hours and he'd be like a, a really experienced person. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Flying back through. Well, what are some of those things you got up to? Yeah, so yeah. What, what were some of the deployments and and sort of trips that you did in Blackwall? One of the highlights was over to uh, Cape Levec. It was actually my upgrade to SeaCat, uh, where I had to yeah to arrange all the logistics and everything else for it to to show that you could take a troop of aircraft away, but then also do a bunch of the mission planning and, and whatnot for that. So. Uh, that was in, so I got to the regiment in late 93, and so this was about mid-94, I think, when uh, we were going over there, troop of aircraft, and, and it was, you know, so from Townsville to Cape Levec, so the top bit, northeast Queensland to northwest, uh, Western Australia, uh, with a, a stop off in, you know, Tyndall and Lake Argyle across the way, a bit of a tour there, and on the way home, we stopped in via Alice Springs and around Uluru and all the rest, so did the whole the, the whole scenic thing, which was great. And, and here we are as myself and another freshly minted CCAT pilot, Scotty Bendo, actually, who's now Brigadier Bendo. The two of us have uh, restricted instrument ratings flying along from Uluru back to Alice Springs at night, because it's night BFR, with no cloud, 
reasonably overcast sky, so no stars, no ground lights, looking at each other going, how the hell isn't this instrument flying? Um, and uh, sort of go, and, and like I say, neither of us actually qualified to fly in cloud, but both of us out here not knowing which way is up apart from our instruments. But the flying itself out at Cape Levesque was, was in support of the SAS, one squadron SAS, and you know that was my first taste of operational uh, flying, a lot of tactical insertions and indeed down to air crew procedures as well, where you know we'd land in a in an LZ to drop off the team, and then we get given an envelope. In the envelope were instructions to say your aircraft just become unserviceable or you've just been shot down. You need to make it to this rendezvous location uh, by this time. Uh, so off you go, and uh, and the crew would then have to take off and start humping through the bush or through the through the swamp or whatever, uh, and another aircraft would land, you know, however long later, and there'd be someone picketing the aircraft, another aircraft would land, another crew would jump in and fly the aircraft home while we went off and stomped through the bush for a day and a half to, to get to our RV. And, and so it was a, a really great introduction for me as a young guy into this is the world of, of tactical aviation. Uh, you're not just a pilot. You are a soldier and an officer. And you need to be competent on the ground and in the air. And uh, and it was just a brilliant, brilliant exercise. I've heard of people doing that. I never actually got to do something like that. But yeah, I've heard about you know the Lodi passing the envelope forward and having <laughs> to crack it open and, and do something mm. like that. But uh, yeah, I, I never actually uh, did anything like that. Uh, overseas trips? Yeah, did you uh, do great. anything overseas in Blackwell? Yeah, so East Timor was uh, so some training in Papua New Guinea. But uh, apart from that, the operational side was to East Timor. I bounced backwards and forwards between Blackhawk and Chinook in my career, and I had only spent about 18 months on on Blackhawk before being asked to go across to Chinook. So went across there mid '96, and partly because of that uh, change across to Chinook meant that I uh, stepped sideways out of Blackhawks in mid '95, uh, which is when you know John Berrigan and Kel Hales were stepping across into the DT role and. And I was smacking between those two guys on, on as far as courses and experience were concerned. So, so that's certainly one of those sliding door moments that I, I, I look back on every now and then. I guess just for context there, for people who didn't listen, if you listen back to, I think it's Matty Barker's episode where they talk about the uh, Blackhawk crash in high range, uh, that's what uh, Kev's alluding to, to those guys, I take it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Kel and, and JB were, were the two pilots who were lost that night. Yeah, like I say, Kel was six months ahead of me, and JB was six months behind me or so on pilots' course. So, uh, so that was a that was not a not a good night at all. Um, but for deployments, yeah. So I headed across to uh, to Chinooks for a few years, uh, and then East Timor came on, and then I was asked to go back to Blackhawks again to be the uh, the XO or the two IC of, of B Squadron. So December '99, jumped across to Timor in the the XO role, albeit no longer a current on Blackhawk. Went across there for a few months, uh, came home for six weeks, which was five weeks worth of Blackwater refresher so that I could go back again to uh, be the, the debt commander for the next three months or so, wrap it up and bring it home from Dilly, XO back in barracks and then went back over to run one of the detachments in late 2000, early 2001 when, uh, when we were out at Balibo. So, you know, that was, and that was a, a great, proving ground I'll call it we've done lots of good training in Australia but, but that was a great proving ground because a lot of the, the mission profiles that we flew uh, in East Timor were actually similar to what we'd flown in Cape Levesque uh, be it whether they were uh, pinnacle operations or formation operations you know tactical insertions repelling insertions winch you name it pretty much all the, the methods of insertion and extraction we use uh, in East Timor, and uh, so yeah, it was a great proving ground. Without being from a from an enemy threat perspective, uh, without being very high on the on the threat profile, so it allowed us as aviators to to hone our skills. Yeah, just to answer that because my next question is going to be obviously we talk about Afghanistan later on, where there was definitely you know rounds coming your way. Was there any incidences there yeah. in Timor where you guys were actually uh, shot at, or uh, there was enemy action? No. No, not um, not for the time that I was there. Uh, I know some some of the guys in the uh, very early period around the October to November period. I think it was in '99. Uh, I believe they had 
there was a couple of flights in there where uh, there was either a hot extraction or, or something else went on. But certainly in my time, uh, no, there, there were no, no rounds or no hostile engagements that I'm aware of. All right, where, where to then next? So 96, 97, spent 15 months in the States doing my instructor training over there and at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And uh, and that was a, a great time for me to understand Americans. I've got to say, I, I certainly suffered from culture shock whilst I was over there. We we are two nations divided by a common language. Uh, and, you know, and I say that with all affection. But, you know, at times it was uh, very challenging. And I found this again in Afghanistan where we just you know, at, at times just didn't understand each other for, for various reasons. It really seemed to be quite often simply because of, of that that cultural difference. And, and the culture shock comes from us being so alike in so many ways and yet so very, very different in other ways. Now, that said, there were a bunch of great times as well and a bunch of times where both in Alabama and in Afghanistan uh, where we got on like a house on fire, and uh, and it was it was great great times. What what time but were you flying over there? Was that still Chinook then, or? Yeah, that was Chinook. Yeah, you know, and and this world's a small place. So two blokes on my instructor's course over there. One was a National Guardsman, and another guy was a regular. The National Guardsman flew Hueys in Vietnam, and then went on to Northwest Airlines as a seven four seven captain and and check and training captain but has continued to be uh, to, to work in the National Guard and uh, as one of their senior instructor pilots. And, uh, you know, here we are in, in Kandahar, goodness me, uh, 10 years later and, you know, bump into each other in the mess hall. Hey! Get out <laughs> of here. Someone, someone who's flying uh, Hueys in Vietnam was then flying Chinooks in Afghanistan. That's amazing. Yep, yep, yep that's exactly right. Uh, it, it is very incredible, and this guy Gene is just the the nicest guy on the planet, I think. And so to see him, uh, yeah, in a war zone and and going out and conducting missions was just something else. It, it really, really was. And then another fella there, his, his name's Matt, and he was uh, again with me in the instructor's course, and ended up going on to the one sixtieth to fly the the MH forty sevens, and my deployment to Iraq. Uh, when we're getting ready to, to cross the border, you know, went into one of the ops planning rooms in one of the places we were, and uh, and I see this figure in the corner. I go, get out of here, no way, and uh, walk up, tap him on the shoulder, and sure enough, he, he was Matt. So it was in 2003, and then 2006, here we are in Afghanistan, and again in a mess hall. I see this bloke walk in with with no patches on him and and all the rest, and I walk over and say, hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> and and there he is again. So different corners of the earth yeah. at different times, and just happen to bunch uh, to to bump into each other. Pretty pretty amazing. All right. So you've mentioned a couple of different years then. So obviously you do instructor training over at Fort Rucker. You come back to Australia then. You were yep. d- Did you float then in Australia for a while, or what was the? Because when did Iraq yeah, so, happen? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So ninety six, ninety seven in the states, uh, and then uh, back on the Black Hawk for for Timor, finished up that uh, and then you know, had a ground job in 2002, 2003. Uh, Iraq came up in 2003, so I was recalled to the, the regiment to be an LO for the SFTG, the Special Forces Task Group. Went across to to Iraq for that and that was only a short trip. The, uh, the Chinooks were staged outside of, of Iraq for a couple of months. Uh, or for a short period leading up to the, the crossing of the border and the actual kickoff of of that war, and so yeah, we stayed with the Chinooks in that um, in that staging area for that time, and then once Baghdad fell, then I stepped across into Baghdad with a, a small recce party to go and have a look at a couple of potential options for us to step up with the Chinooks into Baghdad, and that was you know I was over there for about a week or so, a bit under probably about four or five days I think. Came back and uh, starting to put the plan together and got told, no, nope, Chinooks are going home. The Chinooks themselves never actually went into Iraq. Uh, they stayed outside of Iraq uh, and did logistics runs uh, in the uh, in the rear areas. And, yeah, the, the war sort of was over before it started for the Chinooks, unfortunately. But the, the good thing about that was that it actually made Army Aviation start to think seriously about war fighting again. 
you know, as I say, Timor turned out to be a good proving ground for some of our uh, basic tactics, techniques and procedures, but it, it was really... But because there was no real threat to aviation in East Timor, it allowed some, some soft skills to be developed, but it didn't really get the core focused on the hardware and focused on the, the bigger picture. Now, thinking about sending Chinooks into Iraq, that forced our core to start to get serious about what equipment, what hardware, what training, what preparation we were actually putting into our machines and our people. And, uh, and so that was the big... And, and thankfully that occurred because we rode the wave of that into Afghanistan um, in 2006. And it would have been a very, very steep curve, probably insurmountable in the time that we had uh, for us to do it for Afghanistan if we hadn't have been to Iraq, uh, well, trained and prepared to go to Iraq in 2003. And I guess we'll talk about OPAW or operational airworthiness later on, but I remember seeing you know paperwork starting to come through at this time, and this is where you were talking about all the work that was happening, especially on the engineering side. So we're talking you know radar warning receivers, we're talking flares, we're talking all those sort of um, theatre-type uh, add-ons to, to aircraft. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, it was broad, uh, collectively phrased, the rapid acquisition program. Uh, but basically, we're talking about any new bit of equipment that was needed for, uh, particularly the aircraft, but also for the people, uh, for them to be able to go and operate effectively in a threat environment. So yeah, that's exactly right. Radar warning receivers, chaff or flare dispensers. You know, ended up getting mini guns for Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, or, or, or you know, ballistic protection. You name it. Or bunches of stuff. I, I I need to find out what the number was, but it was a, a very very large dollar sum that was spent. That's for sure. It's probably a good point then to talk about Sea Squadron in terms of you know how big it is because when we talk about the Australian Chinook uh, capability, it's a it's a very small group and team that's doing all this work. Oh mate, absolutely. It's it's almost a microcosm. You know, and, and indeed, when I was asked to go across there in 95, end of 94, I was asked and I went across on, to do my initial course uh, mid-95. We only had four aircraft. Well, there were only, actually, they hadn't even landed yet. Four, four aircraft, that's it. And, uh, and then we ended up bumping up to six at some stage in the late 90s. I can't remember exactly when that happened. But we got to six aircraft for the squadron, right? So that, that's it. That's the Chinook capability for the Australian Defence Force. And, and their stock standard US Army D model Chinooks. So yes, we're, we're looking at a very small force. Now, coupled with that, all of the people going across to Chinook, first of all, it was deemed to be a second tour aircraft. So you had to have flown another type before you went to Chinook. And the rationale there was that uh, they wanted a cross-pollination of experience from recce and air mobile to start to fill Chinook so that it, it wasn't biased one way or the other and I think that was a really good thing to do and the other thing they wanted was experience, guys with some experience coming on to Chinook so that there was less chance of human factor or aircrew error when it came to just operating the aircraft and, and whatnot and that there was a arguably a higher level of decision making available to the crews to again help to support such a very, very small fleet in order to get the maximum efficiency out of it. And and again, for the early days, I think that was a, a smart move as well. It was quite a sort after posting too. Like, you know, people would put their well, hands up and, and be fairly competitive for it. Yeah, well, it wasn't that in the early days. In the early days, it was actually known as a retirement squadron. There was a, you know, and I'm not saying this, this was just sort of the... Uh, the reputation that it had, and I'm not saying it was justified, but a number of people saw it as the retirement squadron. And indeed, in the early days, we were, well, when I say the early days, really up until Afghanistan in 2005, when I went across on the recce and then we actually deployed the aircraft in 2006, they only conducted uh, logistics operations. Every now and then, they might be involved in an air mobile, but the air mobile uh, had to have a secure LZ before the Chinooks were allowed to be involved. So had this kind of reputation as the retirement squadron, the logistics squadron, and uh, and certainly not warfighting in any way, shape or form. The Iraq deployment started to change that culture, but, uh, but like I say, they they were still used for logistics tasks for the preparation for Iraq and, and didn't actually conduct any combat tasks. 
So it wasn't until Afghanistan that we actually changed it. And and yeah, it was probably late to late nine, very late nineties, I would say, that you know it started to a few people started to get interested in Chinook and started to to put their hand up more readily to to go across to Chinook. But in late nineties, early two thousands, and certainly once. Iraq kicked off, then there were there were plenty of people trying to get across to Chinook for sure. All right, so there's a gap there. So Iraq, you come back to Australia for a bit, and then the, the next place is is then into Afghanistan. So was there a lot that you could take from Iraq into Afghanistan, or was it sort of you really had to sort of start operations there again just because it was really different? Yeah, uh, uh, very, very different. So Iraq, you know, the area, the AOs we were looking at in Iraq were basically flat as a pancake. The areas we're looking at in Afghanistan, you could not get any more um, challenging in terms of you know, vertical, vertical terrain. My very simple uh, analogy for Afghanistan for the landscape is if you want to make a movie about the Mars, about Mars or the Moon, film it in Afghanistan because that's just how how rugged the terrain is. We we certainly took some things across from the Iraq preparation for Afghanistan. And one of the biggest things that I took across uh, when I went on the recce in 2005 and myself and a couple of others went across with the SFTG when they were initially inserting just to start to have a look. We, we already knew we were going to be deploying. So we went over there to look at exactly how we would make this work. And And the number one lesson that came out of Iraq was that of our total six aircraft for the ADF fleet, three of them were taken to Iraq, and three and those three air, and two aircraft were flown hard in training and qualifications and all sorts of stuff leading up to Iraq, basically flown into a phase wall, and then the other three aircraft that were taken to Iraq, basically all of ours were flown out of them in the three months that they were there, and basically all flown into a phase wall. When they came home from Iraq the capability basically stopped dead for the better part of six or nine months whilst they started to trickle the aircraft or get the aircraft through face servicing and, and start to get a capability back. It really, really crueled the capability by taking three aircraft across out of six. Can you start so just a little bit deeper? Yeah, can you start a little bit deeper into that, in that face servicing and just explain like the you know the, the servicing section only has a certain throughput they can do? Can you just talk about that for a moment? Yeah, yeah. So uh, probably not the most qualified bloke to talk about <laughs> the maintenance perspective. From but from the but as far as an operator is concerned, you know we you know we need the aircraft serviceable and with hours on them for us to go flying and for us to to do what we need to do. From an engineering perspective, they need to. They've only got so many engineers and they've only got so many hangarage and tools and all the rest of it. Uh, just the same as as one. One pilot can't fly two helicopters at once. Uh, one engineer, one maintenance guy can't swing a spanner on two helicopters at once. So we really need to schedule the aircraft so that they, as one aircraft is coming out of deeper level maintenance or phase maintenance is what it's called in the, um, in the Chinook world, as one aircraft's coming out of deeper level maintenance, another aircraft is having the last few hours flown off it until it's out of hours and then ready to go into phase maintenance so that uh, there's a... There's no overlap is what you're looking for. You're just looking for one aircraft at a time to go into that phase maintenance period. But unfortunately, what we had was, I believe, at least four, if not five of our six aircraft out of hours and therefore having to have the phase maintenance inspection carried out, which took months to do as a deeper level maintenance uh, before it was then to a standard where it now had another... 500 hours, or I can't remember how many hours, but how many hours on, on the aircraft for operators to, to go and use it. So you're normally looking for one aircraft at a time and a nice steady stagger is what it's called. Uh, but here we had five of the six all lined up at the front gate of the hangar waiting to go in to get their maintenance work done. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, big, big problem. The type of flying you were doing on that first uh, Afghanistan trip, then was that did that was the same when you went back later on, or what was that sort of flying involved in, ta- in terms of tasking? Yeah, so you mean in the amount of tasking? Yeah, or just the, the types of missions or, and and yeah. So I guess from a from a maintenance perspective, first up, yeah. So when we uh, went to so when I went over there on the recce, I simply said straight up, you're only going to get two aircraft, and I'd love to give you three, but we proved a few years ago. But with three aircraft deployed, we killed the capability. 
and we just can't sustain it. And we we could see at that stage that we were going to be in Afghanistan for a long time. And quite simply, if we took three aircraft over there, we were only ever going to get 12 months worth of deployment before we'd have to have at least 12 to 18 months worth of reset. And so it just wasn't sustainable. So two aircraft was, was how it was going to be. And, and to uh, allow those two aircraft to be of any benefit meant that we had to plug into a larger um, task force over there. And, and so we, we plugged in with the US task force based out of Kandahar, uh, even though the, the SF component was in Tarrant Cout. In 2005, 2006, there was no other aviation element at Tarrant Cout. It was logistically impossible uh, for us to to be in Tarrant Cout and provide support to the SFTG. So we went to Kandahar, plugged in with the SF, ta- uh, sorry, with the uh, American task force there which had, don't quote me on the numbers, but ballpark, a dozen Apaches, dozen or maybe even 20 Chinooks, and at least that many Blackhawks, uh, probably 20 Blackhawks. So, you know, good-sized aviation uh, battalion uh, there that we plugged into, and we we became effectively just another aircraft uh, in their orbit, their order of battle, that they would include on any and all tasking, the, the bread and butter of which... Chinooks are a great logistics aircraft and it's a very rugged environment and any any troops on the roads are targets in Afghanistan. So the bread and butter for the crews, for all the Chinook crews, doesn't matter what nation, was logistics. So we would do what what's called ring runs. So they have blue rings, red rings, brown rings and whatever else. And, and all that meant was a different day of the week and a different location that got, uh, that got a Chinook dropping through with, you know, beans and bullets and cans of Coke and all, all those other sorts of things that, that soldiers need. I was going to say ice cream. That's the most favourite one. Ice cream. Yeah, yeah. Ice, ice cream as well. Absolutely, mate. For sure. And occasionally there was, you know, yeah, bullets and fuel. But, um, yeah, plenty of Coke. <laughs> Fair enough. The, the iconic <laughs> sort of shots you see the Chinooks landing there is just, you know, these dust clouds coming up. So was that your experience there with the, with the dust? Oh, totally. Mate, the dust is like nothing I've ever seen. Uh, and it would, believe it or not, it was a very different dust to Iraq as well. In Iraq, the uh, the dust would absolutely chew engines up. They would annihilate engines. There was one example, not with us, but uh, another aircraft, uh, where I think they got 50 hours out of a brand spanking new yeah. engine because they didn't have inlet you know, particle separators of any form on it. And, uh, yeah, about 50 hours, that's it, mate. Chewed up, gone, spat out. And yet the, the dust in Afghanistan... When we got there, we you know, we didn't have uh, particular particle separators or whatever else, but the dust was so fine, so incredibly fine, that it just passed straight through the engine and really didn't seem to wear them at all. So it was it was quite incredible, and it was um, a real contentious point uh, with the engineers because they uh, they kept on wanting to put restrictions on us for what we could do and couldn't do, and wanting to put these great big weighty particle separators on the engines and all the rest of it, and you know, again, I'm not an engineer, but I, I asked a few what I thought were objective questions and said, you know, well, none of the American aircraft have got them, uh, yet they all had them in, in Afghanistan, oh, sorry, in Iraq, and it was a couple that didn't have them in Iraq that chewed through their engines, but none of them had them operating over here in uh, in Afghanistan and, and all of the hit checks and everything else we were doing, there was just no degradation on these engines. You know, I was, I was challenging them to show me why we needed to put all this extra weight on the aircraft when... There was no evidence to support the need for them. But yeah, um, okay. yeah mate, the dust, easily 200, 300 foot high dust clouds, you know, not uncommon at all to be completely enveloped, even with the best dust landing technique, to be completely enveloped at 15 to 20 feet uh, above the ground and just have to hold the controls and, and you know, believe that you've, you've got the you got the profile right, you've got the, the attitude right, you've got the diesel right, and that there were no potholes or, or big rocks waiting for you on the ground when the gear contacted. Did you guys wear heart rate monitors for any of this sort of stuff? It would just be amazing to see, you know, a, the shot of the GoPro from the from the cockpit with the, the heart rate superimposed on it. Uh, mate, no. I think I'm happy that we didn't have them at that stage. It, it would have been a fascinating set of stats to have, though, that's for sure. You weren't using any technology at all because, you know, you hear this new stuff they roll out, which basically, you know, allows you to sort of see or at least have some like a point of impact um, as you're coming in for, for mm. dust landings and night landings. But this was just, you know, essentially all unaided 
or yeah, it might have been goggles and stuff. Yeah, mate, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the best thing we had was the head-up display uh, monocle that attached to the NVGs. Yep. Uh, there was actually a monocle that was used for maintenance test flying during the day to test the system. Uh, and we got approval to wear that monocle during the day for operations. All oh, right, uh, that's where that was, that was, Yeah, so we had Dayhard, and, and that was just gold, absolutely gold to have that. But no, mate, apart from that, once you're in the dust, you were back on the clocks. I mean, the, the Chinook was literally uh, round dials and gauges and analog for, you know, all of the instrumentation. You know, there, there was, you know, I've, I've had it, been fortunate to have a little fly at the F-model Chinook simulator up in Townsville with its, uh, I don't know what it's called, but essentially the dust landing mode, zero visibility mode. And wow, what a stunning piece of kit that is. But no, mate, we had the Mark I eyeball and that was it. All right, in the interest of just keeping things moving, was it, was there anything else from that particular deployment that you want to pull out as, as being you know, quite challenging or, or sort of important to, to know? Um, uh, mate, seriously, we we need two episodes um, <laughs> to go th- to go through it all. Because uh, this we, isn't this is th- when th- you were because you came in a sixteen brigade and then you went back as the detachment commander. So this is a this is a previous Afghanistan trip, isn't it? Before you went back to sixteen brigade. Yeah, correct, mate. This yeah. is two thousand. So this is all two thousand and six when I was the the OC of the squadron and and over there as the the deck commander. Yep. Um, but yeah, so you know, it, probably the biggest one was when we conducted a live Special Forces air assault uh, onto a compound and, dare I say it, and I'm not saying this from a place of ego, I'm saying it because it's fact and, and because one of the most disappointing things about my time over there, not my time over there, but but the deployment as a whole, was it became actually became very divisive for Army Aviation. There were a bunch of, of Blackhawk guys, and this is going to be a bit controversial. Um, so... You know, I'll put some noses out of joint by saying this, but unfortunately, it's the truth. There were a number of Blackhawk guys uh, from the the SO squadron and surrounds at the time who believed that um, that we stole their deployment. And the fact is, you know, because they worked with SO and we didn't, we did logistic stuff in in Chinooks. And the fact is, we didn't steal the deployment at all. The, the SO team asked for an aircraft to lift an NLRPV. I simply said to the Blackhawk guys. Hey, fellas, uh, I don't know what Blackhawk you got that can lift an LRPV, but if you got one, let me know, because that's what the SFTG want. And we just happen to fly the Chinook, and I just happen to be the squadron commander at the moment. So, you know, well, I actually had to we're do going some, over there to do that job. Yeah, I actually had to do some planning figures, and the Blackhawk, like there's certain areas there where you could like carry three, you know, something with the heights. You can carry like three people on board in, in combat kit, and it was just, it wasn't, mm. it wasn't feasible to, to take three people <laughs> to the top of a hill in a Blackhawk. No, that's right, but that's where we should have got new engines for them. And, you know, Steve Jobson was the, the OCB squadron at the time, and he's now Brigadier as well. Uh, and he and I talked about it at the time when the, the mission came up and, and we were told that they wanted Chinooks. And uh, and I said, you know, we, we've got to make it a a combined force of Blackhawks and Chinooks, and, and we need to get both types over there to have the... the the, the best force that we can to do the job that we need to do. Um, and, you know, I still believe that we spent a lot of money on Chinook and for all the right reasons. And I, I would like to have seen that we spent some money on Blackhawk to have two or three Blackhawks over there with those two Chinooks. And, and then I reckon we would have been an amazing uh, little combat team. Uh, to come back to it, what I was, what I was going to say before is that we ended up with the Chinook Task Force uh, conducting the first live Special Forces Air Assault for Army Aviation. And um, so actually before the specialist Blackhawk SO squadron did. Uh, and like I say, I don't say that from a place of ego. I say it's just, that's just a fact. With that, that was quite some doing. We took, actually took the aircraft out of the operational task force uh, to conduct training for that for a uh, for, you know, better part of a week by day and by night with dry drills and then uh, live rehearsals with the, the SF team that we worked with, the Canadian Special Forces and the Afghan Special Forces, and then put together the force package with uh, Australian Chinooks, Dutch Apaches, uh, AC-130, you know, and a Predator uh, to go and conduct this, this air assault. So you can't get much, you know, combined joint uh, operation than that. Put our, put our Chinooks in you know, literally about 30 feet from the compound walls, browned out by, you know, still 20 feet, 15, 20 feet in the air, completely browned out, 
put the aircraft on the deck. Uh, the guys out the back, we were so close to the compound wall that one of them literally smacked into the compound wall and knocked himself on his ass. Uh, one of the operators, as they as they ran out the back and set the charges on the wall and, and got to work. And then we got out of there. And, uh, and it was meant to be 40 minutes turnaround time until we went back and, and picked them up. But um, it ended up being about two and a half hours because they got into one of the biggest bloody firefights. And so by this stage, the moon had gone down. The fighting was continuing and it was... Uh, you know, maybe half an hour or, or so until until first light and we got the call to go back in and pick them up. And, you know, whilst we were waiting there in this time, you know, we're not meant to fly when there's no moon. For anybody who knows about night vision goggles, uh, you know that they magnify ambient light. So if there's no ambient light, there's no light and therefore there's nothing to magnify and therefore there's no image. So... Uh, the moon had gone down, uh, reasonably overcast, uh, and one of the pilots from the other aircraft came over and said, hey, boss, um, we, we really shouldn't be flying. You know, it's still pretty hot up there and, and there's no moon. And, and I said, mate, there's 10 of us and there's 70 of them. And when they call, we're going to go. So go and get back in the aircraft and let's get on with it. And to his credit, he did. And uh, And when we got the call... We picked up, went in, and uh, and the Australian commandos were the QRF, and they had established uh, the inner cordon, and the AC-130 had the outer cordon, and so our LZ was secured by fire. And they created a horseshoe, and we had both our chalks identified, and uh, we came and landed in the bottom of the horseshoe. On the way in, we got the radio call that all the fighting had died down because they knew that we were coming for the pickup. And so uh, we were told to abort. So we promptly ignored that and continued on with the landing. Got the aircraft on the ground and then all hell erupted. All hell erupted as uh, as a heavy machine gun and and, uh, tracer and whatnot going between the aircraft, across the front of the aircraft, the side of the aircraft. And, And to the point where I couldn't hear or feel the troops getting on board the aircraft. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, this is taking a long time. And so I, I looked down the back and there's, there's definitely no movement. And I, I called to the, the guy on the ramp, and uh, who's Greg Maiden. And, uh, and I said, mate, are those guys getting on or what? And he said, no, they're too busy watching the fireworks. And I said, well, can you, put, can you tell them to get their asses on the aircraft? Because I'd really like to go. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so, so they eventually got on board and, and I asked them afterwards, I said, fellas, what the hell are you doing? And he said, man, we couldn't believe you guys came in to pick us up. We couldn't believe it. Did you, did you see all that shit? I said, yeah, mate, we did. And we were kind of waiting for you to get on board. So anyway, I'm glad you finally got yourself sorted out. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, they, they got on board and, and we got out of there. Just because of the, the complexity of the terrain and all the rest of it, our guys uh, on outdoor guns, didn't end up firing that a number of number of potential targets, but just couldn't confirm uh, friend or foe. But the guys in the other aircraft ended up engaging with the, the minigun uh, Griffo on the left-hand door gun. They ended up engaging on the, the minigun whilst they were still sitting on the ground. And the um, uh, and then as they lifted off, that target then went to uh, Lee Maloney on the ramp. And then as they were as they were turning and exfilling, then Scooter Wakeland on the right-hand gun, uh, then uh, then opened up as well. And they, either on the way there or on the way back, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but, you know, they, it was so dark uh, that they almost flew into the ground. And, uh, you know, so because they just, they just couldn't see. And, you know, afterwards I found out that on the approach, they're talking to the commandos on the ground, on the approach, they're saying, you know, how the hell did you guys get in there? And, uh, you know, they said there was, there was one RPG that went under, the aircraft and another RPG went over the aircraft and there were at least three other Taliban or insurgents with RPGs poking their head up ready to fire as we're on approach but Bravo 4-0 identified them and killed them prior to them getting their round away. You know we were incredibly incredibly fortunate to to get away with that that night and that said you know it's this is what I was referring to when earlier when I said I never believed that it wasn't going to happen even though I knew the moon was going down and even though I knew 
that the fighting was still going on and all the rest of it, I actually never had a doubt in my mind that it was going to work. Incredibly, incredibly fortunate uh, that it did. But I, I know that I, I pushed some of our guys to the limit that night. There's no question of that. But, but as I said, that there were 70 other blokes that were, they were in a lot of trouble and, uh, and needed a hand that night. So I'm very glad we could give it to them. Wow. So while that firefight was happening in, in that gap, were you, so obviously the aircraft were back in, at, at base on the ramp, the other crews were at the aircraft, and what, you were monitoring the radios in the command post? or No, we were sitting, because it was only meant to be a 40-minute turnaround. So okay. we uh, went back to Tarrantcout as a staging place and uh, staging location, and the operation was happening only about 15 k's north of, uh, of Tarrantcout. And so we could actually see uh, a lot of the... Uh, you know, the major explosions, there was a major weapons case that they found and then they blew in place. Uh, and we we could see that explosion from Tarrant County. It was massive. Uh, you know, we could we could see some of the effects of the AC-130 going on. Uh, and, um, yeah, it was it was quite a uh, quite an amazing battle. So we were just sitting there with the APU running, uh, you know, engines off, APU running, listening in on the radios uh, as it all unfolded. And then when we got the call, you know, cranked off, cranked up, and, and off we went. And uh, you know, another thing we found out at the um, the end of that is that just after we um, just after we had got the extraction, actually, it was, uh, not long before we got the extraction, an AC-130 went bingo on uh, 105 mil, I think it was, and then just after we finished the extraction, they went bingo. Sorry, Winchester, sorry, Winchester on 105 mil and then Winchester on 40 mil, and then went bingo on fuel. Wow. And it's the first time that the AC-130 has gone bingo and Winchester on the one mission. Yeah, so that was a, it was certainly a very, very big night for those blokes as well. And what do you do after that? Like, you drop them back, I guess you took them back to Tower and Cow. Did you shut down then and then check the aircraft over, or like, what was the sort of the, the follow-on from that? No, so we, um, uh, there was one KIA, uh, one wounded, and uh, and everyone else is intact. So from a ground force perspective, it was also an incredibly successful operation. They 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 killed the guy that they were after and got a bunch of uh, intelligence uh, as well out of the, the site's exploitation. And and they put their their mission success and their very low casualty rate down to the fact that we uh, dropped them on the objective. And that um, you know that the phrase that I used was that. By, by creating such a massive dust storm and the element of surprise. And there were a number of factors that went into the mission planning for that. There was a number of deception pieces that went into it, everything from the package composition to the route that we flew and, and various other things. And all of those things together, uh, the ground forces are absolutely convinced were, were what gave them such a tactical advantage and such low losses on the ground. But, but you know, I, I said that we create the chaos and then we swim in the chaos that we created because we're in control of that chaos. Uh, as, as much as that sounds like an oxymoron, you know, that, that was very much the philosophy of the, the way we conducted the assault. It was executed perfectly, basically. Uh, but no, so we got back to Tarrant Cout um, and uh, got some medical attention for the, the guy who was wounded. But at that stage, it was right on first light. So too bright for... Uh, goggles too dark to go without them. So we, uh, you know, spoke with the ground force commander, sat on the ground uh, there for an extra 20 minutes, just to allow daybreak to to come a little bit further, and then continued flying them home to to Kandahar. And then, um, yeah, we dropped them off at their base and went back and shut down, checked out the aircraft. Not a single scratch, not a bullet hole, not a scratch. Uh, on, on either aircraft. One of the Apaches took a round in the tail, which took out a hydraulic line. Uh, so they had to abort and head back to Tarrant Cout. Uh, that was during the extraction. But our aircraft, yeah, not a, not a hole, not a scratch. No, landed, had the debrief, grabbed a coffee and moved on with the next mission. <laughs> I mean, you know, Schnook's not a small target, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. It was no, that's, that's the exactly air. right, mate. And 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 it was you know the advantage we has we had was that it was pitch black. Now even though the place was lit up like a Christmas tree when we even before we landed in the LZ, but certainly after we landed in the LZ, the amount of illumination there was 
was was insane just from the the ammunition, you know, the, everything going off. But yeah, somehow we still managed to, to get away unscathed. All right, <laughs> cool. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Like you know, I was obviously you know in a, in a different unit, and then we worked together at uh, at Sixteen Brigade. But like, it's amazing how isolated. Um, or pillarized, I don't know if that's the right word, maybe siloed, the different organizations are because, you know, that's the first mm, time I've mm. heard that full story. You know, I've heard bits and pieces that, you know, something happened. Yeah. But uh, yep. at the time, especially back in Australia, there was no, you know, especially down to the front line where I was, like, I, like there was no write up. Um, and then, yeah, you talk about capturing lessons learned, all that stuff yeah. never, never made yeah. it back to me, that's for sure. No, no, mate. And, um, and unfortunately, it was a, Oh, you know, I touched on it before. This deployment really divided army aviation between the SO community and uh, and the, there was already a divide between SO and non-SO in the Black Hawk world. And unfortunately, this divided the SO and the Chinook world and the Black Hawk world and the Chinook world. And, and it was all really, really disappointing to see, I've got to say. And, you know, I'm being very blunt here, mate, and I know that and people aren't going to like me saying this, but it's it's just the truth, or it's at least my opinion anyway. Uh, and I'm happy for other people to have their opinions, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody who'd like to chat about it. it really was very disappointing, and uh, you know, unfortunately, mate, uh, I I got called everything from a cowboy to a coward um, from the various missions that we did over there. And uh, from from all different people within aviation uh, and the special forces community, you know. Well, you get that. So mix. Was, you, get uh, the, you get the aviation crew. We'll talk about later on about you know the, the right stuff and, and things yeah. like that. And then you get the the SO, the special operations side of things, where it's like they're they're two pretty high pressure uh, cultures. Oh, mate, absolutely. Like you know, so there was a you know another time. So we we you know we did that task, and and that was seen as a, a resounding success. Um, because it was a resounding success that that mission, and particularly, like I say, it was it was a truly combined joint mission in every sense of the word. It had army and air force, had Canadians, Afghan, Dutch, U.S. and Australian forces. Uh, it was it was a, a massive success in many many levels. Later on, we we conducted other SF uh, operations where we were trying to get patrols onto a knife edge ridgeline and hovering for, I reckon, a cumulative total of about an hour with our rotor blades about five feet from the cliff edge, trying to get uh, the SF patrols onto, uh, onto this ridgeline. And, you know, again and again and again. And we, um, and when we got a little bit too close, then, um, you know, we had the, you know, five, four, three, going, oh! <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was that was the man squeal. And... Yeah. Um, <laughs> that we, we, we came to love and actually the Mansfield came about from a number of years earlier when I had a mid-air collision with a boat, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> right. um, yeah, so, you know, when we got a bit close, then then the Mansfield came out and uh, and that was actually Griffo. So if Griffo's listening to this, yes, I've outed him. We, went, we got back from that job and a month earlier, a US Army Chinook was backing onto a cliff edge and put their main rotor through a tree, which then unbalanced the rotor head so badly that the whole aft rotor head detached from the aircraft and the forward rotor was still producing lift so it flipped the aircraft on its back, crashed, killing all 10 people on board and that was for a resupply mission, you know. So we that was fresh in our minds as we were up there with the cliff edge and, you know, I'm dangling over easily a 1,000-foot cliff looking back over my left shoulder at the, the rocks that I could see to give me some form of a hover reference and moving this aircraft that weighs, you know, the better part of, you know, 18 to 20 tonne, inches to a foot or so at a time, but only in response to what I can hear through the headset based on what the crewman is telling me, because he's the one who can see the rocks that we're trying to avoid. People who are used to flying with crewmen uh, up close to obstacles, they know what I'm talking about here. But for anybody else who's listening to this and, and has never flown with a crewman or has never had to trust someone else to put the aircraft... Uh, to to con you uh, to a position where you're putting the aircraft close to obstacles. It is it is about the highest level of trust that you can have in another individual, particularly in a combat zone. And so, you know, it was an incredibly challenging night. And and you know, one touch on those rotors on those rocks, and we were gone. At the end of it, we and and by the way, it was so 
the rocks were so tight that we, we were the primary, the secondary, the tertiary, and we ended up finding somewhere else to land that was over a thousand feet below where we were trying to get them in. But it was it was absolutely acknowledged that there was nowhere else to go and, and so there was certainly no hard feelings about that one. But afterwards we were talking with the SFLO about uh, that mission compared to Isle Nile, which was the hot extraction I was telling you about earlier. And he said, which one would you prefer? Go and have another Op Nile or go and do that mission again up against the cliff edge? And all of us said, without missing a beat, for God's sake, give us bullets. We don't want to kill ourselves. Let someone else do it for us. It was was that type of mission. It was absolutely intense. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I I don't. And, you know, it's interesting because I I just did another job not – dissimilar to that just last Saturday in my civvy, you know, search and rescue job. There were uh, a fellow just fell from a cliff here in Brisbane, down south in Mount Barney, and uh, I went and got the the other two people who were with him uh, off the side of the cliff, and and it was an incredibly technically challenging rescue to to do. There you go. All right, so where does that then find you? So we finish up there. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, mate, so finish up uh, now uh, in Afghanistan and um, then things, the, the wheels were starting to come off psychologically for me and um, and the, the first indication, my first panic attack was actually back in 2000 after East Timor, believe it or not, and um, I still don't know why to this day. All I know is that I had a completely involuntary physical response um, walking into a shopping centre to get a loaf of bread. You've been listening to Kevin Humphreys share some of his experiences over part of his career and hopefully getting an insight into some of the different types of operations and some of the behind the scenes of the Australian Chinook capability history as it was in the 2000s. In the next episode, we pick up again the story and as you probably gathered there at the end, we switch tracks and start to drill into the aircrew mental health side of things as Kev opens up about his own experiences and recovery and how it applies to the greater aviation context. Hopefully we can help normalise that discussion about mental health a little bit more in our aviation community, and especially highlight that it's, it's not a career-ending event by any means at all, that this is you know, way more common than most people think, and there are plenty of avenues out there to get some help, whether that's you know, professional help or just purely about peer support and looking out for each other. There's plenty more details on that in the next episode. However, Kev has shared a bunch of links to your online resources and organisations that I've included in the blog post for this episode, uh, episode 70 at rotarywingshow.com, just in case anyone wants to access those in the the meantime. You'll also see there on the the website, you'll see some photos from Kev's career uh, on the blog post, including a, a really great shot of the Chinook detachment members before they depart overseas. So, for many of us listening, there'll be some familiar faces there uh, that you'll be able to see if you know the the C Squadron members. I've been playing around with creating a, a few short helicopter trivia online videos for Aeropower, which is the, the flight school I work at here in Brisbane in Australia. Uh, so the ones on there at the moment, there's one there about uh, Teletemp, uh, uh, thermal stickers, the difference between magnetic variation and compass deviation, you know, why we have an offset vertical tail fin on some helicopter types. In the next one, I'll probably get a chance to record this week. I was looking at doing on you know the mindset when dealing with air traffic control. And a lot of students and even you know country pilots who are coming in to do flight reviews really get jammed up and worried about their their radio calls on the, the center frequency or going into controlled airspace. And I think you know the mindset idea that might help here is that we as aircrew are very much the the customers, and air traffic control is there to work for us uh, within limits, and they're there to provide a service for us as the end user. I think if you approach it that way, it's much easier to have that customer service frame of mind that they are a resource there to help rather than you know being gatekeepers who are going to try and keep you out and judge you and waiting for you to stuff something up. So you know we're very much you know the customer, and it might be just different to have that mindset. So yeah, I'll try and shoot that video this week and put that up. If you're on YouTube and put in Aeropower helicopters, you'll find those videos come up in the search results. And a big thank you to uh, past guest Aaron on Facebook from the helicopter page for sharing some of those videos too. 
But I guess the reason I say all that is, is more than just purely to drive some video views is to enlist your help and, and get you involved in generating some topic ideas or helpful helicopter trivia that can be covered in a, a short one-minute video online and shared. So if you've got some ideas or next time you're a pre-flighting or have a, a flight, if anything uh, comes to you regarding video topics, you know, make a, a note on your phone and then when you get a chance, uh, dropping a line later on at feedback at rotarywingshow.com or leave a comment under one of the videos and I'll try and uh, churn through those and, and see if I can get some more videos out. A quick thank you to the show supporters on patreon.com. Heath Armstrong, Daniel Nelson, Peter Sargent, Jason Pangolos, Tony Blumston, Rendell, Kev Barlow, Mike Atkins, and Mick Barrett. Thank you, gang, for helping to offset some of the costs and, and keeping the show on the web. Uh, if you want to be part of the support team and sometimes get some early access to the interviews and whatever else I can kind of cook up, I'd love to have you on board, and you can get involved there at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Thanks for hanging out again, not only with me and Kev this time around, but also with a bunch of other like-minded helicopter folks listening in from around the world. I'll catch you soon in the next one where we pick up again with Kev Humphreys for part two.